Hi, I'm Brandon Briscoe, and welcome to The Postscript, Living Faith Bible Institute's weekly podcast and YouTube series that's devoted to interviewing pastors and professors from the Bible Institute about a plethora of, su- of subjects, including missions and, and ministry and theology, and uh, this week, church history. And I have the privilege of interviewing Pastor Greg Axe from Crest Bible Church here in the Kansas City metro area, who is also our church history professor at the Bible Institute. And We've, uh, we've interviewed him before in the past, and, and we talked about the first three centuries of church history. We just kind of unfolded the narrative and talked about the spiritual principles, the biblical principles that we could pull from those three centuries. Uh, this week, we are going to take some time to focus in on the transition between uh, the third century and the fourth century and what the church looked like as it, as it came into relationship with the Roman Empire. We'll be talking about Constantine today. We'll be talking about the uh, the Council of Nicaea. And we'll be talking about councils in general, councils and creeds and different aspects of uh, things that were born of that third and fourth century. And so I want to introduce Pastor Greg Axe. Welcome, man. It's good Thank to have you. you back. Good to be back. Uh, our, our in-house expert on this subject matter. Well, okay. We'll just try to get to as much best we can on this and... Uh, just a matter of you know study over the years and gleaning information and looking at it and trying to draw conclusions the best you know how to do and sure. so we we'll, we'll run with it yeah it's yeah good to be here and there's a lot to talk about as it concerns oh, church yes, history yeah. so. especially when you get to this particular segment of it because mm-hmm. of the fascination that you have with what happened with constantine morphing christianity basically sure and even the the differing perspectives yeah. on what people see here and how people right take the history of Constantine and the Roman Empire and, and, and twist that and manipulate it to fit whatever their, their preconceptions are. And, and we hope to avoid that. We hope to look at it from a biblical perspective first and foremost. Yeah, exactly. Just look at the world we live in today. You can look at the events that's going on today and you could watch without getting political or anything. You can watch Fox News one day and you can watch CNN the next day and get exactly the same facts and two totally different stories. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because of the perspective of the people who are reporting it to you. You get some guys' history books that are about that big on the shelf, and you can wade through mountains and mountains and mountains of information trying to analyze what this, what the author's worldview is. Sure. So I always tell people, here's a shortcut. Find the area, uh, find the place where the guy is reporting on Constantine. And you can do a few other characters, too. He's one of the key ones. The section in that book or whatever where they're reporting on Constantine and read through a little bit of it and determine whether or not the guy is reporting Constantine in a positive light or a negative light. And I say it this way, if he's reporting to you in a positive light, you can safely assume he has gummy worms for brains. (laughs) Uh, How in the world could anybody possibly draw the conclusion that this man was of God? Yeah. And and usually uh, those are people who are referencing Eusebius directly, yes. uh, and so Eusebius. Maybe you can introduce us to Eusebius, yeah. who was really Constantine's best buddy. Yes, yeah. Eusebius was the bishop of Caesarea, which was around around the area there, and he was um, a political religious leader at that time, who was very very good tight and good, good friends with Constantine, and he wrote a lot of the history of that time. Uh, and so we look at history reported from his viewpoint, and he gives us a lot of the facts, which are great. His facts are trustworthy, but his opinions his and, is, what is, is not, yeah. okay, because he worshipped Constantine almost as a god. He deified him. He thought he was God. He thought he, he called him the Moses of the church, mm. and he thought he was God's representative on, on earth at that time, and it just is not the case in the way that 
everything morphed and 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 how Constantine um, brought in a false Christianity into the world yeah. is not the case. And so you look at it through the eyes of Eusebius, and you find out that uh, he gives you a lot of the facts, but he gives you the wrong perspective. Right. So so let's let's paint that picture. We've we talked about Constantine briefly yeah. in in the last time I interviewed you, but but we want to do a little bit deeper dive as a way of transitioning into these other subject matters as it concerns the Roman Empire and then yes. ultimately the Roman Catholic Church. Yes. So uh, let's just start by talking about who was Constantine prior to his conversion. We'll just mm-hmm. use that word. Okay. And um, and what did he represent? And mm-hmm. what were who, who was he in conflict with? And then how did things unfold historically um, at Milvian Bridge and all all of that? Right. Right. Got all that information. Now, and, and Constantine is one of the guys that you have to know about when you study history mm-hmm. uh, of the of the especially the history of the church. Some of the other characters that you'll run into, you know, you know whether you know much about them or not is inconsequential, but he's kind of a key guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like to use this analogy, too. If you're playing basketball against the Chicago Bulls in their heyday, yeah. you better know where Michael Jordan is on the court. Sure. And um, you pay you pay attention to him. Yeah. The, there's there's other players there that are just as important. They can score on you, too. But if you ignore Michael, he's going to put up 60 yeah. on you, and you're in trouble. Right. Okay. If you ignore Constantine and don't keep your eye on him at all times, same thing with Origen. There's a few characters like that sure. on the negative side of history that you must keep your eye on, and he's one of them. There's a few on, on the positive side. But on the negative side, if you don't pay attention to Constantine, you're going to draw wrong conclusions. You're going to get some wrong things. So the church was coming out of the age what is called Smyrna uh, in the Bible, which yeah. is a time period of persecutions. Persecutions against Christianity have always been there. They always will be, but they were intensified in the early part of the church. Yeah, and so just as a reminder, if people haven't watched the previous episodes, yeah. When we talk about history in terms of ages, what we're referring to is Revelation chapter two and yes. three. The letters that were written to the churches in in Revelation uh, mm-hmm. are a way of understanding history. They actually give us a script for the way history unfolded. And now yes. uh, we can look back on history and we can mm-hmm. see how how each of those letters represents uh, generations of, of believers mm-hmm. and uh, for negative or for positive right. uh, throughout throughout history, right? And so when we talk about Age of Smyrna, we're talking about an age of, of great persecution yes. against the church. Yes, and that was the tactic of the enemy, Satan, of course, is we're going to try to stop this thing uh, by stamping it out with brutal persecution. If mm-hmm. we can just kill all the Christians, then it'll then it'll stop. Mm-hmm. And that's one of his methods of operation uh, as the roaring lion seeking whom he may devour to try to eliminate um, Christianity by that uh, by that means. And he tried it in Smyrna for basically two, three hundred years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can read about some of those persecutions in the book of Acts. Um, but then it just it, it went into warp drive through the Roman Empire and the pagan emperors leading up to Constantine. Ten, ma- ten perse- major persecutions. Ten correct. major persecutions yeah. that are identifiable in history um, by secular and religious uh, scholars both in history that can identify those 10 major persecutions. These it's also be, prophesied yeah, within 
That's right. They're in Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to give you tribulation 10 days. So Mm -hmm. those are the 10 persecutions, and you can identify them by the emperor who was launching the persecution against them. And there's breaks in between all 10 of them. leading up to, of course, Constantine. So you've had the world of Christianity that has been uh, severely physically persecuted for roughly 300 years. Uh, And we talk about time frames like that, and I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that old, and that's a long long time. time. And so you have generational persecution against Christianity. It's as long as America's basically existed, right? So and. So he tried it for 300 years, and it worked backfired on him because Christianity spread like wildfire through the empire. Mm-hmm. And by the time of 300, in spite of the fact that Christians were arrested, tortured, and persecuted, um, and killed, uh, no um, court dates, no, not just they were apprehended and killed on the spot sure. for hundreds of years. Uh, this still just exploded by like wildfire because God's not going to be put in a box mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And we get into that particular time frame where Constantine rises on the scene along with some other emperors at the time. There's always this tug of war and fight over who's going to take over the world. Of course. And they're uh, you know, it's it, the ultimate game of risk. You ever play that, the board game? Yeah, it's really long. I always quit halfway through. Yeah, I know. I know. It's like Monopoly. You go to sleep before it's right, over exactly. with. But, um, uh, but it's a fascinating game to play, you know, game of world conquest. Mm-hmm. Well, this was a game of world conquest, not with dice and little plastic pieces. These are actual human beings. Mm-hmm. It started out with five and ended up with four to three and ultimately got down to Constantine where he had um, – finally taken over control of the world. And there were a series of events that were taking place along the way that where he brought the the Christian side of the world underneath his sway. Mm -hmm. For 300 years, every Roman emperor had persecuted Christianity and viewed it as the enemy and tried to suppress it brutally and physically. And Constantine uh, comes along and through a shrewd political move um, said basically that phrase we use from time to time, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And roped the church in through what took place during his during his life. So, uh, just to kind of walk through the battle scene, if you will, sure, for a little yeah. bit, because it's 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 interesting to do. You had five emperors uh, initially vying for control of the kingdom around, uh, of the Holy Roman Empire. Right. Or wasn't holy at, at the that time; time. It, was it was the pagan the Roman, Roman right. Empire uh, at that time. And you got five guys who who are fighting over this thing, mm-hmm. and each one has areas that they uh, control. Constantine had uh, Western Europe, Great Britain, France, that area. Uh, you had. Um, a friend of his by the name of he became his ally Licinius who had a certain area Maxentius, Maximian and Galerius he had those five guys who had various controls of certain areas and regions and so they'd start fighting with each other to try to eliminate each other and all that other Mm -hmm. type of stuff Um, in as it got down to that point in 311 AD Galerius Licinius and Constantine. Those three were in this faction, and the other two were in a different 
faction. Mm-hmm. They kind of teamed up with each other. You remember the survivor shows on television? You right. form alliances. Yeah. When you're playing Risk and you, if you're able to make it all the way, do you ever... That happens mm-hmm. during uh, the game of risk also mm-hmm. where two guys will say, hey, I won't attack you if you don't attack right. me until we get to the end, right. right? And so they form little alliances like that. And so that's what happened with those guys. Um, and they formed an alliance. And those those three guys with Constantine being part of that issued in 311 what is called the Edict of Toleration. Mm-hmm which was an edict from them as kings that we're going to go ahead and tolerate Christianity. Um, I brought with me, and I, and I, I hate to read during these times, no, it's okay. but it's necessary sometimes. Sometimes when you, when you stop and read things to people, your eyes roll back in your head and they're going, oh, it gets dull and boring and stuff, but it's vitally important for, for us to understand the words. I have a reprint of this. This is uh, the Documents of the Christian Church mm-hmm. book, which is, has reprinted many of these. This is actual yes. translated into English, obviously. Sure. This is not, I don't make this stuff up. This is the actual edict that was given at that particular time from these men. Um, And so I have to read part of this and explain what went on. Okay. After the publication of our edict ordering the Christians to conform to the ancient institutions, many of them were brought to order through fear while many were exposed to danger. In other words, they're Uh, translate these things after our publication of our edict they had given an edict earlier ordering all christians to conform to the world Mm -hmm. meaning the roman pagan sacrifices and abandon your god and stick with the god of paganism they had to actually make christian they were making christians uh make sacrifices to the emperors yes yeah 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 and, up to that point, yeah, and 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 deny their 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 allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right, right. So they issued an edict to order people to submit to their pagan religion. Mm-hmm. So this is not a Christian guy. This is along the same line as the persecution. All these guys, including Constantine, are still persecuting Christians, and they issued this order. And they said, well, after the publication of this, we looked at that and we thought many of these people are brought to fear, many of them exposed to danger. There's a lot of persecution going on. Nevertheless, since many still persist in their opinions, well, we've tried this, but it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. This is a shrewd political move on Constantine's part to say, we've tried persecuting Christians for 300 years and look what it's gotten us. Mm-hmm. They just keep multiplying. They won't submit. Right. They won't obey. Many still persist in their opinions. Since we observe now, they neither show due reverence to the gods. This guy's pagan. He's been pagan from the beginning. He never quit being pagan. They now neither show due reverence to the gods nor worship their own god. We therefore, with our wanted clemency in extending pardon to all, Whoa, 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 time out for a minute. Our clemency to extend pardon? To, what if? What did Christians do to offend the, uh, the emperor, emperor right. or the empire at that time other than want to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and raise their children to honor and serve him and to worship God? Yeah. That, uh, what did they do? Yeah, they, they've never been merciful up to this point. Never. Right. 
Okay, and Christians have not been done anything wrong against the sure. empire, right? But now these arrogant, pompous fools are going to extend their clemency and pardon to this group of people. Okay, we're pleased to grant indulgence to these men, allowing Christians the right to exist again. Mm-hmm. Who do you think you are? Allowing Christians the right to exist? I mean, mm-hmm. that was the edict that they gave in 311 called the Edict of Toleration. That was a political move to say, we can't stamp this thing out. Right. If you can't beat them, join them. Let's rope them back in. And so in issuing an edict, allowing them to exist again as if they had the right to do so, mm-hmm. The Christians who have been persecuted now for 300 years, I mean, we're talking generations. We're talking people who their great-grandfathers were put to death by this system. And they've suffered this type of brutal persecution for hundreds of years, and it's unspeakable some of the physical tortures that were given to these people. I can't even go into it. It makes my blood curdle. It makes my, it it turns my stomach. It's horrific. Uh, just because somebody wanted to believe in Jesus Christ, the, the, uh, the, the things that they suffered as a result of that. And they've been through this for hundreds of years. And all of a sudden, an emperor comes along and goes, well, we're going to allow you guys the right to exist. And they're going to go, <sighs> right. And that relief of the emperor saying, and it's just one of the emperors now. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's five guys who were titled emperor at this point in time saying, wow, they're going to obviously support him and go on his side. He right. has he needed he needed the people, the common people yes. to stand behind him. Yes. Yeah. To put it in our context, he has gained the evangelical vote the populist, in, the, in, the in, populist in, vote. in this ne- next yeah. election. Okay. Yeah. And so that's just all that is, is the um, as the Bible calls it, it's the Council of Balaam to bring Israel into false gods and false worship mm-hmm. through subtlety and and roping them into this thing. And so it's I call it the marriage proposal of the church, mm-hmm. where the emperor proposes to the church to come in to our group, and I'll be part of you, and you'll be part of me, and I'll grant you the right to exist. Yeah. Well, in the process of doing that, you've got these five emperors. Galerius died shortly after that. Now you're down to four, and the four are factioned off two versus two. And you've got Constantine and Licinius, then you got Maximian and, and, and Maxentius over here in these two groups. Uh, Maxentius was the guy who controlled Italy and northern uh, Africa. Mm-hmm. Constantine controls Western Europe. So if you got the picture of the, of the map in your head coming from Britain, France, that area down into Italy, that's, that's where the, uh, the battle was taking place at that particular point in time. So Constantine leads his troops into um, Italy, approaching Rome over the Tiber River north of Rome is a bridge called the Milvian Bridge. Mm-hmm. And he, Constantine gets to one side of it. Maxentius's army is on the other side of that bridge. And one of the red-letter dates in history, October 27th of 312, that night Constantine had a vision of Christ. Now, here's where we're taught not to think 
anymore. Yeah. We assume that this that this part of the story happened exactly as the way it was explained. Yes. And we assume because every subject, every record of history is subject to the view of the historian. And when the historian reports to you that Christ appeared to Constantine, when Eusebius reports, yes, <laughs> they immediately go in this direction to say, well, that must be Jesus Christ. When our Bible tells us there's two of them, there is Christ and there is Antichrist. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so whenever somebody says Christ appeared, the first question you should ask this we're, we need to be taught to think. Yeah. The first be an inquiring mind, stop and think. The first question you need to ask is which Christ? Yeah. Which angel of light did you see? Yes. Right. Okay? Because I don't know about your Jesus, but my Jesus would not appear to a pagan, brutal, filthy, murderous, a lecherous, fornicating dictator and tell him to continue killing people to obtain world power. Now, that's what this Christ did. He showed up to Constantine. Which, in, it, just on a sidebar, mm-hmm. that same angel of light has shown up to many false uh, religious leaders throughout throughout history. Absolutely. Saying very similar things. Yes. Take it take it by force. Take, take it, it by take force. It, take it by force. Or let me quote the Bible, but let me quote it a little differently. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. Genesis chapter 3. Who was the first one to quote the Bible incorrectly? Mm-hmm. Yea, hath God said, you shall not eat every tree of the garden? Okay. So this Christ appeared to Constantine uh, the night before this battle and told him, gave him a sign, a vision mm-hmm. that said, in this sign, conquer. In other words, he painted the sign of the cross on all of his shields and his helmet, went into the battle the next day um, and conquered uh, Maxentius and defeated him. And so now you've got three emperors that are left at that particular point in time. It's two against one. Constantine being Constantine Licinius being the one, and uh, Maximian being the other in, in the east. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so again, that vision um, is interpreted by most historians as a movement of God to bring Christianity to the world through this great emperor called Constantine. And that's why I say, look at the way that a person reports that. And if they report it in a positive light, then you know there's a problem there. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, not, that, that's not a positive. That's the wrong Christ who appeared to him. He had a vision of a false Christ called Antichrist who looked at this thing and said, from, driven behind the scenes, went, yeah, I've tried to persecute these people for 300 years and I can't do anything about it. Why don't I find somebody who can rope them in? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what happened. Well, to continue the story, I'm going to long, uh, long detail with it. What happened after that is then you had the rival factions there. Constantine and Licinius are on one side and Max, Max, uh, Maximian is on the other. And Constantine met with Licinius in 313 AD in Milan and issued what is called the Edict of Milan, which is another one of the famous edicts Mm -hmm. that establishes Christianity as the state religion, for lack of a better term, in that that particular, um, among those two guys, okay? In exchange at that meeting, here's another little key interesting tidbit at that meeting of Licinius and Constantine they confirmed their covenant toward each other Mm -hmm. by Constantine giving his sister to Licinius to be his wife yeah 
Okay. There's always typical a monarch stuff. Typical monarchy yeah. type things. Okay. <laughs> Here, here's my sister. Okay. Right. Um, let me give you a few of the the the, the virgins in my sure. kingdom, and you know we'll be at peace with each other that yeah. way. So Constantine and Licinius are now brother-in-law. Constantine's sister is married to Licinius. And so that's the faction. And you got this other enemy over here. And Constantine um, convinces Licinius to attack this other guy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know that when you've got three left and two go against each other and you draw the by, guess what's going to happen? These two are going to weaken themselves in the battle and you're sitting back waiting. And that's exactly what he did. Sure. Okay. This guy was a politician and a filthy one at the same time he sent his brother-in-law to attack this guy and they had a little conflict war for a couple three four years whatever it was Uh, eventually licinius um, defeated maxentius and drove him out and so now you've got two left and they're the buddies and immediately as soon as licinius won that battle constantine attacked him this is his Mm brother-in-law okay tells you what kind of yeah, guy the, he was not the most moral act. Uh, no, not at all. Okay, and so he attacks him, and again to shorten the story, uh, by the time Constantine gets the upper hand, obviously because Licinius has been uh, decimated through his uh, attack prior to that, his he's been weakened, and all of a sudden he pounces on him and gains the upper hand quickly. Um, Licinius and his wife. Now, follow this story. Licinius and his wife, the sister of Constantine, come and meet with him and and, and volunteer their surrender if, if Constantine will spare their lives. And he agreed to do so. He said, if you'll surrender, I will spare your lives. They surrendered. He had him executed. That's his sister and his brother-in-law. That's the kind of guy. This is after supposedly he was converted right. to Christianity at that vision at, at Milvian Bridge. Mm-hmm. Then he consolidates his gain. So now he's the emperor of the world. And the year after he becomes the emperor of the world, he executed his own son, Crispus, who was the general of his army against Licinius because he feared that his son would raise a coup or a rebellion against him. What a wonderful man this is. Yeah. And I don't think, uh, I think what I what I read a lot in the history books is people excuse this as um, maybe immaturity on his part or excusable because, well, it was a different time. This is the way politics worked in that time period. Uh, but there's no way around the fact that, that the Bible would paint this as immoral activity. You, you cannot justify that right. any time, any way. Yes, I know these kind of things happen in the political world, but you cannot justify it. No. It, it's just, it, it's, it's not pagan. possible. It's pagan. It's pagan. Yeah. Okay. The man never stopped being pagan. Mm-hmm. And what happened was that when he became emperor of the world and he has already roped the Christians in by tolerating them. Right. And giving them, quote, his clemency mm-hmm. to allow them the right to exist, they're all going, why, this must be awesome. Yeah. And it just sucked them right in. Yeah. So at, at this point in history, uh, Constantine has control. And now what he's trying to do is consolidate not just uh, the the governmental power, um, but he's also trying to consolidate the churches and, mm-hmm. and all of the major churches you know major metropolitan churches um 
he begins building alliances with the bishops of those churches yeah. and he starts funding the work and, and things like that. Maybe you can tell us about, about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, as soon as Constantine comes to power, then of course he's pro-Christian, though he's not a believer himself. He right. got baptized three days before he died and baptism doesn't save us anyway. Right. But that's beside the point. It's not beside the point, but it illustrates he he never really trusted Jesus Christ as his sure. personal savior, no record of he that. He did not have it, a proper soteriology. He did not have a proper understanding of mm-hmm. New Testament doctrine of salvation. Right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but the point is he became, he becomes political over these churches and with them. And so, yes, he starts – and again, understand you've got these people who have for generations have been – not just put at the bottom of the rung of society, they have been brutally persecuted, yeah. and all of a sudden they are now elevated to equal status or prominent status in the world. And Constantine, out of his riches dominating the world, begins to fund the, these churches uh, and these groups of people. Up to this point in time, churches met wherever they could meet, mainly in private mm-hmm. and secret. Uh, as much as they could because they're running from the authorities and they're right. hiding they're, they're they don't have you know they don't have open um worship time sure yeah and the churches are generally small and spread out throughout the community exactly they look a little bit like covid yes yeah they have social distances yeah social distancing. <laughs> but <laughs> um uh, but there are, are are leaders over areas of group life. There's some prominent Christian yes. men at this particular point in time. And because of this deception and get roped into this thing, and of course there were a few, I'm sure, that resisted it, but by and large people had got, got sucked in on this thing. And Constantine becomes friendly to them and starts giving them money and starts building things for them. Uh, they're obviously going to take advantage of that to mm-hmm. try to further their 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 work mm-hmm. okay uh, and it becomes more political than it does religious but both of them together so Constantine begins building churches at this point in time and they're very ornate and they're very lavish and they're very um, um, big and um, you know all of a sudden it's like wow we are this is awesome we're mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're kings important. of the world we're yeah. important yeah we're controlling things and in the process of doing that, these bishops, these pastors, um, these leaders of the church cater to Constantine to stay in good favor from him because he's the man. He's dominating the whole world, and this mm-hmm. is not, you know, this is not a representative form of government. This is one man on the throne yeah. calling the shots, and if you don't do what I say, I can still, I still have the power to execute you. Sure, I'll, I'll kill my son or my brother-in-law if I need to. Yeah, and he and he wasn't against excommunicating oh, no, bishops. He would move them. He would take them and move them way far away if if their theological views did not align with his own. Exactly. Yeah. So he's consolidating power and control in this kingdom politically and religiously. And another one of the principles of my church, um, of my history book is this: that Satan deceives men through three means: religion, politics, and the military. Who are and they're always related to each other in the in the course of human history. And mm-hmm. what it typically does is you start with a body of thought or a religion. Um, uh, when, when a certain thought process dominates an entire group of people, then you pass laws that say you cannot disagree with this thought process. Mm-hmm. If you do, then we will 
Mm -hmm. and now the military or the police or the uh, the 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 physical aspect of that enters in and now you've got the people boxed in and they can't get out of that particular deal and that's what Constantine is doing through the religion of Constantine which was paganism Mm -hmm. uh, with Christian clothing upon it makes it look like it's Christian when it's not Um, he then passes laws that say you have to conform to this Whereas before he was making him conform to paganism, now he's making right. everybody conform to Christianity, sure. his brand of it. And if you don't, then we will deal with it. Right. So he does have a consolidation of the kingdom, and everything's going swimmingly for a while. For a while. And I want to get to I want to get to uh, how papal order was established and how mm-hmm. Rome became the the, the central church. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, there's a series of events. A series of councils, in fact, yes. that take place uh, that deal with theological issues, mm-hmm. and uh, and so what happens is these controversies, um, uh, theological controversies, uh, give reason for um, Constantine to say, "Hey, we've got to get you guys together. We got to get you in the same room, and we're going to have you work this thing out." Right. Uh, but a byproduct of these councils that take place throughout history, a byproduct of that is establishing the authority. Uh, as the Ro- Holy Roman Empire, that yes. that is a is a byproduct of these councils kind of unfolding. Now, yeah. I want to talk about the councils, and we'll okay. start with the Council of Nicaea. Could you right. talk to us about the Council of Nicaea, and then and and maybe lead us through what that was about, and then how future councils unfolded, uh, seven ecumenical councils right. in all. Right. Okay. Now, a council, C O U N C I L, is essentially a meeting of religious leaders to mm-hmm. keep it as in, in its simplest term as possible. So you get a group of guys together to discuss their theological perspective on one on a particular issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bible uses that word differently than that. Whenever the Bible uses the word council, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, except in one place in the book of Matthew that deals with the millennial reign of Christ, but in every other case, you have a group of religious leaders who are assembled together to oppose God, to kill Jesus Christ, to kill one of his followers. Look it up in your New Testament sure. every single time except for that one that points ahead to the millennial reign. Okay? It's all, Yeah, it's, all, it's generally it's negative. bad in Scripture. It's yeah. bad. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, but you have these meetings all the time. So what uh, what happened at this time with Constantine on the throne is uh, that the kingdom is now at peace because you have one guy, they're not killing each other anymore. You have Christianity elevated to uh, the dominant religion, and you have Constantine funding churches and making everybody, making the leaders of Christianity wealthy and prominent and famous. Uh, and yet there's a faction that takes place, and there's yeah. arguments that yeah. take place over theological issues. And the basic theological issue that was argued at that time was over the deity of Jesus Christ. And so we're now 300 years into this thing, and Jesus isn't around. His apostles aren't around anymore uh, about this. And so they're gathering some of this information, and people are coming up with all sorts of theories about who Jesus was. Was he really God manifest in the flesh, or was he just a lesser God, a created being uh, of God? Was he even human? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, there, were, there was a faction of the church who, who was teaching that Jesus Christ really wasn't even a human. He was just an apparition. He was a vision uh, in people's head that he wasn't even real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's others saying, oh, yes, he was really a man, but he wasn't God. Right. And he was a good man, but he wasn't God. And then they're saying, no, he really was God. And so you got this faction argument taking place within the church over that theological issue. And so Constantine, that, that's threatening now to faction out the churches. And Constantine wants unity and peace at all costs, right. which is, of course, the mantra of the enemy. Unity and peace, by the way, my unity, my peace, not yours. Mm-hmm. Okay? So he gathers a group of about 300 bishops in the city of Nicaea, which is in, in Asia churches Minor, all over the world. From all over the world to discuss this particular issue, and he's going to preside over it. Constantine hasn't read a Bible day in his life to this point in time, knows his own brand of Christianity that is paganism with Christian clothing on it, um, and he, but he's the emperor. Mm-hmm. So he's going to control the shots. Right. He's going he's to call everything. And so he assembles all these guys to argue the faction together. Well, you've got the various factions there, and without going into long detail, I mean, yeah, we talk about this a little bit. We talked about the Council of Nicaea. Yes. We talked about Athanasius and Arius, and yes. we, we mentioned those guys. And if right. you if you want, you can go back and check that out. Mm-hmm. Um, that content's available to you. We won't deep dive on that here, right? Arius taught that Jesus was a begotten God in eternity past. He wasn't really God manifest in the flesh. Athanasius taught, no, he was God manifest in the flesh. And so they got together, argued this thing, and produced what was called the the Nicene Creed at that time, which was supposedly a statement that everybody agreed to. And, of course, you got all these bishops together. No, put that word in. No, change it here. And it took them months to get get through this thing. Finally came up with this creed, uh, and everybody had to sign off on that. This is what we believe. A few people dissented. When they dissented, and I would dissent to the creed in certain fashion as well, which we'll probably get into. Those who dissented were banished, their goods were confiscated, and ultimately they were persecuted. Yeah. So, basically the Aryans. Yeah. yeah the same – same. well, the Aryans, yes. But there were also some Bible believers who looked at that creed and went, you know, that creed just doesn't – It doesn't go far enough. It, it doesn't define it, the terms the right way. It doesn't define it correctly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So maybe we pause here for a second. Yeah. We're going to talk about creeds for each of these councils produces a creed. Right. What is a creed specifically? Um, what's, what's an easy way of explaining? Easy what way a creed? of explaining would be an orthodox statement of theology. Yeah. Um, like a statement of faith. Statement that, of faith, yeah. yes. Okay. Um, that people have to agree to. And if they don't agree to it, according to a council, mm-hmm. then that the council is infallible according to these people right and we have issued this creed and if you don't agree to this creed then we will curse you right and so that's what are produced by councils are creeds and curses Mm -hmm. this is what everybody must agree to the common thought process the the group think the the talking points the you must believe what we believe mindset that is followed up with if you don't then we have given ourselves the right to persecute you. So now right. the persecution flips from the empire against Christianity to Christianity then becomes the persecutors. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So here comes that that creed at the end of the Council of Nicaea uh, that Constantine presided over. Uh, the most important of all the councils is the one is is Nicaea because then that that sets the tone for all the rest of them right. after that and what what took place. Now, there are. There are thousands of councils that have taken place throughout yes. church history. Yes. Some of them are reformed, and some of them are are among denominations. And mm-hmm. so there's all kinds of councils. But we, we refer to these seven ecumenical councils uh, as being foundational uh, to the to the history of the church. Yes, and the creeds that they produce being foundational to the history of the church. And and so maybe you could explain to us what an ecumenical council is. Why does that? Why is that separate from just councils in general? Well. You can have guys get together and discuss the Bible, and we do that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can get various pastors of church to get sit, sit down together and go. Here's what I see in this particular passage. What do you see? And we'll talk about it. And come. What we don't issue a creed that 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 is a that is our construct of what we think this theology is mm-hmm. that you must agree to, or else we will banish you and take your goods and persecute sure. you. It would be like uh, pastors getting together and determining what everyone's church website should say on the statement of faith. And exactly. if, if we don't all, all agree to that, then you will be excommunicated right. and you will be and What your and, liturgy is and how your sure, service sure. is going to operate yeah. and what your music is supposed to be sure. and uh, what book of the Bible you're going to preach to uh, through and when you do, how you're going to do it. Yeah, that usually okay. doesn't go well. No, it doesn't. It do does that. not go well when that happens. Okay, uh, so that's that's what they were doing at that time. So that creed that they produced, called the Nicene Creed, or sometimes they call it the Apostles' Creed, when the apostles had nothing to do with it. Yeah, the um, Apostles' Creed. On a side note, was actually the the gospel of the kingdom of God. Yeah, according to scripture. But exactly. That's a, that's a side note. That's a side <laughs> note. Yes. Okay, so this Nicene Creed was 226 words long to try to define the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, these are what some of these issues in the Bible, like the Trinity. How do you explain that God is three yet one? Now, how do you explain that, and how do you wrap your head around it? Mm-hmm. Can you grasp that? Yeah, I can grasp that by faith, but I will never grasp it by intellect. Yeah, um, and and I say it all. You just don't try to figure it out. It'll make your head hurt. And but until I understand fully understand the right. Trinity, I cannot believe in, in Jesus. Well, you'll never will. Same thing with the deity of, deity of Christ. How could God, who created the universe, come through the womb of a virgin and lie in a crib? and cry and grow up like the rest of us and be just as human. Uh, somebody said it this way, Jesus is just as much human as if he were not God sure. and just as much God as if he were right. not human. But you can't wrap your head around that. You will no. spend the rest of your life trying to intellectually grasp that rather than just, okay, I accept that by faith. Mm-hmm. And this is like, uh, so the next three Really, the next three councils are yeah. wrapped up in dealing with this issue. The, the Council right. of Ephesus mm-hmm. that pitted Nestorius versus Cyril, right. which I think is a great story because those guys are oh, they they're just insane. They're both just so <laughs> insane. Yeah. So like on Nestor- Nestorius, on one hand, was a literalist. We probably align ourselves closer with Nestorius yes. in many regards. He's from Antioch. Right. Um, and then we've got Cyril on the other side who's from Alexandria and he has more of a Gnostic perspective and so one guy's emphasizing the humanity of Christ because because he wants to see things intellectually 
and and literal. And so I think there's problems with the Nestor- things Nestorius said. Yes. Yeah. Um, but Cyril, on the other hand, because he comes from more of a Gnostic background, he is he wants to emphasize the deity and the abstraction of God. Yes. And so these two factions war and produce basically warfare in the church for the next century and a half, two oh, yeah. centuries. Yeah, and, and it's still been going on today. Yeah. So they produce this creed, and now you have to recite this creed. And I remember doing that early in, you know, I was raised Catholic, so I remember in the Catholic Church getting going to, to, to Mass, mm-hmm. and part of the service is I believe in one God, the Father, and I don't remember all of it anymore. It's, I've it's got been a while. It, but it's been a while. But you would mind numb, re- repetitive, repeat this creed mm-hmm. that has no repentance in it. There's no blood sacrifice of Christ in it. Um, some of the things in it are blatantly false. Right. Um, and they've tried to take a simple concept. Um, when 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 God revealed to Joseph and Mary that they were going to have a son and they were going to call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Now you can't intellectually wrap your head around God being, but how how simple is it's a simple truth? Three words. Yeah, it's a God simple truth. With us, it's a big idea, but it's a simple truth. Yeah, yeah. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. I and my Father are one. God was manifest in the flesh. The Bible already told us very simply, very many different times how Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. He was God with skin on. Now. We can't intellectually grab that, but what happened was these guys wanted to intellectually grasp that and define it in a document uh, and a creed that then everybody has to recite, and reciting that creed doesn't do anything for anybody. Mm -hmm. And so now here comes the next council, because we have to, because this creed now we've got to define settle it it the first time we got to we got to define it again we got to set new boundaries let's do it again and again and here comes another one another one another one and people dying over this sure sure you know and and also the thing about that is that they're not only just trying to to settle simple truths which okay i guess at some level we can appreciate the desire to do that Mm -hmm. but along the way this is you know how uh, uh i don't i forget what they call it from my american history class but when they when they tuck policies in uh, to a, a a law or a, a bill that's trying to be passed, what do we call? They call they that they call that a writer or something like. With some of the stuff that just happened sure. today, we we passed this bill and tucked into that as all these little goody pork yeah, things. Right, that, yeah, right, right, yeah, exactly. And yes. so, you know, what they do is they these councils also produce policies that determine which churches are going to have most power, mm-hmm. how churches are going to submit. So then it begins to centralize the power between these churches, which were once, there was once a local church perspective. Yes. Things might not have been perfect. There might have been persecution. Sure. But, but, but pastors led their churches in the mission of Jesus Christ in their community as they see fit, as autonomous leaders, the same way Timothy did, the same way Titus did. Yes. But now there's a centralizing of the power that we're seeing. And so like at Chalcedon, Mm-hmm. Um, there be there begins this perspective of like papal authority yes. begins to build. So how do we get to a place among the seven without going deep right. into Constantinople and then the next Nicene Council? Mm-hmm. How do we? Can you paint the picture of how we gain papal authority amid these councils and amid the politics that unfolded century after century after century following Constantine? Con- Constantine loved the Church of Rome, and he thought that was the 
the best place to be. Now, of course, Rome was the capital of the universe at that particular mm-hmm. point in time. So if it's the capital of the universe politically, then it's going to become the capital of the universe spiritually or, or religiously at the same time. So he lavished a lot of different gifts uh, on the church at Rome. And of course, then you have St. Peter's Basilica and Vatican and all that kind of stuff that begins to be built at that particular point in time. There really was no such thing as the Pope before Constantine. Mm-hmm. Now, the Catholic Church will, will trace the line of the popes all the way back to Peter, but they made the line that, that that's not, it's inaccurate right. and it's, it's fiction basically is what it is. The first pope was appointed by Constantine's called Sylvester I, and he Mm -hmm. was appointed as a figurehead over the Church of Rome, and Constantine thought Rome was the capital of the the world at that time. Therefore, it should be the most prominent church. Therefore, the other churches should, should submit to Rome. And over the next couple of hundred years or so, Rome becomes the epicenter of this new brand of Christianity that is very formal. Uh, it's paganism with Christianity wrapped around the outside mm-hmm. of it. Uh, it's ritualistic. It's um, mind-numb repetitions. It's everybody must be the same. It's a conformance to a set political and religious establishment. And now Rome becomes the, the center of that. So all these various councils are trying to clarify what they muddied up mm-hmm. before, and every time they clarify it again, it makes it worse. Right. Um, and also at the same time, the other unintended con- or intended consequence of that was to centralize the power into one organizational structure, one world, one thought, one speech, Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. Sure. Only this time it is religious with a Christian veneer centered in the city of Rome, specifically the area of the Vatican. And this is going to be the topic of our of our next postscript episode. Okay. And we're gonna we're gonna kind of deep dive on that topic a little bit and talk about the the, the influencers on the Catholic Church, Catholic thought. Um, but before we go, I, I do have a question. So we've talked about councils, we've talked about creeds. There's all these C words that we often hear, and right. I think people have a hard time deciphering the difference between them. Yes. So could you tell us the difference between creeds, catechisms, mm-hmm. and confessions, which are all words that kind of interrelate to one another, right. but, but have different meanings? Could you explain that to us yeah. real quick, just so we have a better understanding? A creed is an orthodox statement that people mind anomaly Mind numbly is not a word, is well, it? Well, it is now. Hey, you know. As I said it was. There you go. Okay. That people just repeat, um, and you must sign off on this and agree to this particular uh, mm-hmm. creed. A catechism would be a, uh, for lack of a better term, a um, a structure of teaching, if you will, a series of questions. And I remember the catechism of Catholic Church when I was growing up, and it was a um, a Bible study course, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. where you have certain questions that are asked, and then you have answers to them or bullet points. Um, in our context, discipleship one would be a catechism. Mm, okay. Okay. That'd be like a parallel meaning. Yeah, para- yeah. Yeah, it's it's something that we could understand in our fellowship. Instruction. Uh, yeah, a course of instruction. Okay. Okay. And then and then a confession would be like a statement of faith. Um, a creed is enforced. Mm-hmm. A catechism is taught. A confession would be um, 
stated. Okay. Maybe that's a good way to say so, it. Uh, so um, a confession would be more like a statement of faith than yes. maybe even a than maybe yeah. even a creed would be. <clears throat> yes. Okay. For example, there's the Waldensian Confession, which mm-hmm. is uh, from the 15, 1600s, which is, that's a group of people that we would identify with in church history as far as having beliefs. And they had, they start out with uh, 14 different points and they ended up with 30. These are, this is what we believe. We believe Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, born of the virgin, da, da, da. We believe in the verbal inspired uh, posi- mm-hmm. uh, authority of the word of God. We believe local churches should be autonomous. There's bullet points of that. Mm-hmm. that that's not a creed where you have to recite it Right. That's not a Bible study series like Discipleship One where you study it and go through it and learn from it. It's a, it's a doctrinal statement that a church or a group of churches says, here's the general position of what we believe. You're free to believe it if you want. If you don't, we're not going to persecute right, you. Right. This is what we believe. Hmm, okay. okay. So that's the difference basically between those three. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, I'm, lo- I'm really looking forward to, to looking more at the religious development of the Roman Catholic Church yeah. as we continue to talk about the age of Pergamos and this time yes. frame uh, between 300 and 400. Yeah. Uh, Greg, it's always fascinating talking with you, man. Thanks cool. for joining us. Yes. And we want to thank you for joining us for this episode of The Postscript as well. Hopefully you've been learning. Uh, hopefully this is new. Um, again, we offer church history as a class at LFBI. Pastor Greg Axe teaches that class. But he also has a book that he wrote called Church History. You can purchase it on Amazon. If this subject matter is fascinating to you and you want to learn more, you should check that out. Uh, if you're interested in subscribing or following along with more of the Postscript episodes, you can find us on YouTube. We have a channel there. You could subscribe or you can find us on any major podcast platform. Uh, learn more about the Bible Institute by visiting lfbi.org. If you want to check out our course of study and our program, uh, go and visit us there. We want to thank you again for joining us and uh, we'll see you next week. High school pastor at Midtown Baptist Temple, and I'm a student of Living Faith Bible Institute, where I can go to class and know that I'm gonna walk away with something that I can use, if not this week, in the future. Sometimes, especially at school, you might be in a class that's gonna get you a degree, but it has no application in your life. Well, in LFBI, I know that I'm gonna take these classes and, and it's either gonna to apply directly to my my craft, to my weekly procedures, or it's gonna be something in the Word that I'm gonna have a student or a counselor who has that question. And now I'm a little more equipped to do the work in the ministry. So I love giving my life every moment I can to young people and to the team I work with because we are affecting the world. Enroll for classes at lfbi.org. If you are interested in donating to LFBI to support future pastors and leaders, please visit lfbi.org backslash donate.